ED ECMO podcast episode 6, the topic of life and death with Dr. Peter Rosen. Thank you again for joining us to the ED ECMO podcast, a podcast with a focus on resuscitation, eCPR, and resurrecting a normal quality of life for a patient who is desperately trying to die in front of you. Today, I had the great pleasure to sit down and talk with Dr. Peter Rosen. As many of you out there know, Dr. Rosen is a living legend, quite possibly one of the most important figures in the establishment of emergency medicine as we know it today. He was there from the beginning. Were you around when psychiatrists and dermatologists were running our emergency departments? Just a few decades ago, there was no such thing as ACLS, CPR, or the concept of resuscitation. In fact, before the concept of the specialty of emergency medicine was a glimpse in the eye of the forefathers of our specialty. Pioneers such as Peter Saffer were doing hypothermia studies in dogs and philosophizing on advanced resuscitative techniques that are now at the helm of resuscitative controversies around the world. It didn't make any difference. There was no place to take these patients who were dying from V-fib arrest. There was no emergency physician. There was no such thing as a resuscitationist. Then came along the North American pioneers of our specialty, and Dr. Rosen was just one of those guys. To bring this home personally, I finished medical school in 1997. St. Louis University School of Medicine didn't host an emergency medicine residency, so I had no exposure to the specialty. I ended up in general surgery residency at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD. And halfway through my internship, I realized I was in pure hell. I was a doer more than a thinker internal medicine, but surgery wasn't for me. Then I ran into a guy named Danny Davis who was a pioneer himself in the field of resuscitation, now at the UCSD Center for Resuscitative Science and working at UCSD. Danny introduced me to Peter Rosen, who was the emergency medicine guru in the emergency department at UCSD at the time. I'd like to go out on a limb and say that Peter and I became good friends over the years. In fact, I'll read this, Peter dominated me in several tennis matches over the next few years. His serve was unreturnable, his backhand wicked, and... Mm. need to stop asking Peter to write his own bios. Anyway, I realized I wanted to be an ED doc and told Peter what I wanted to do. Then, I remember like it was yesterday, I was doing rounds at 6 o'clock in the morning in the burn unit, general surgery intern, received a page from a local area code, and I didn't recognize the number. I returned the page, and at the other end of the call was Peter. He's got that memorable voice, and he asked me, do you want a job? See our residency program was slotted for eight spots, but we only had the funding for six residents at the time. Peter helped rally the troops, paid Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, and with a little help from our local air ambulance service, Mercy Air, the funds were secured to give me and another future resident, Dr. Dan Meltzer, who is now the chief of emergency medicine at Kaiser San Diego, a spot in our coveted residency program at UCSD. I truly owe my career in emergency medicine to Peter, I truly hope I've done everything possible to pay Peter back for all he's done for me. People, please welcome to our podcast, Dr. Peter Rosen. Okay, so I am sitting here today with Dr. Peter Rosen. Hi, Peter. Hello, Joe. I'm sitting here right now, and in front of me, I have volume one of the second edition of your book, Emergency Medicine Concepts and Clinical Practice. Now, I was just flipping through this book. This one was actually published in 1988 because it's only the second edition. But as I flip through it here, 
you get to chapter 1, which is an introduction, and then chapter 2 was written by you, Life and Death. Yes. One thing I noticed in here, there's a chapter on life and death, but there's no chapter on ECMO. <laughs> uh, didn't want to sidetrack that and get onto ECMO, but uh, we can talk about that another time. Well, the chapter on life and death really isn't so much concerned with how life is preserved. It was more some theoretical considerations of what life is, because it's very hard to define. And... Uh, it also is concerned with how we manage death, which we do more of in the emergency department than any other specialty. And it requires some special training, just like everything else in emergency medicine. So I became interested in the subject, and that's why I wrote a chapter on it. What do you think about the direction that we're going in terms of managing life and death right now in the emergency room? I think we've become much better at managing death. And when, uh, instead of saying death, I should say grief. Because the, the problem with dying in the emergency department is that it's like almost everything else in emergency medicine, unscheduled. And frequently unprepared psychologically. And that produces uh, an enormous impact upon the survivors. So we have to deal with that. And I think it is clear that the way we deal with it makes an enormous difference to how people handle that emotional turmoil and can mean the difference between a normal grieving process or turning it into a disease itself. In terms of prevention of untimely death, which of course is also one of our goals in emergency medicine. I think we've done about as good a job as we can do because I think that while the specialty of emergency medicine was in some measure driven by cardiac arrest resuscitation, I think it's treating the wrong end of that disease. As I've told you more than once, I think our efforts to save people after they've died are basically futile. We have some small percentage of survivors, but that if we really want to make an impact, then we've got to get at the genes that cause the disease. And the example I used for you was polio. We had very many expensive means of caring for polio. Uh, hopefully we're not going to have to live through them again. I hear there's a recent burst of polio in California but that the real cost-effective management of polio came from immunization. And I think we are never going to be able to immunize people against death, but I do believe that trying to preserve life at the end point of life is basically futile. What if, though, in your polio example, if you could do something that would halt the disease process for a moment to provide a therapy that might fix the problem that might give somebody another five or ten years of life. And so you see what my analogy is, is in our case we're using now this new technology of using ECMO to bridge people to say a, uh, opening up a vessel and fixing their, their cardiac issue so that they have another five or ten years with their family. Well don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we ought to give up 
simply because most of the cases that we encounter are unfixable. There are some who we are, in fact, extending their lives. And the question is, can we find a way of doing this that is effective, that is less expensive, and that actually works? Now, you know as well as I do, there have been waves of enthusiasm for the magic bullet cures of high-dose epinephrine, cooling, uh, thinking of two examples that yep. produce very expensive death but do not extend <laughs> life. And I think part of that is uh, yet to be proven or disproven for, for ECMO. Well, I, would, I, would, I don't disagree with you that the, that the extent of our experience and, expen and, um, and effort should go towards the prevention process, but that can, as I'm sure as an ER doc, as one of the first ER docs, you'd probably agree that we can do both at the same time as long as we're not spending our way into oblivion. Well, that's my point. We don't have a choice but to treat what comes our way, even if it's the wrong end of the disease. <laughs> exactly right. But I think you just hit the important parameter that I'm concerned about, and that is that we not extend or attempt to extend life very, very expensively, but very, very futilely. Mm -hmm. And I think with polio, we did some good with our iron lung treatments and our sister kidney treatments and our muscle transposition treatments. And we, we gave back quality of life to people who, <coughs> excuse me, had one destroyed. But it wasn't until we were able to intervene in the prevention of the disease with a vaccine that we really did any good in polio. And what truly disturbs me about our society is we have a series of well-meaning, well-intentioned members of our society who think immunization is dangerous, whereas it in fact is the only useful preventive medicine that we've ever invented that and perhaps clean water. All that being said, still, as you just said, we're stuck with a patient coming to us with CPR in progress and what to do. And we talked a little bit about managing death and grief and then trying to manage life. And I went onto the American Heart website here and pulled up a history of CPR. And so I wanted to run through some of the highlights here and then maybe when we do that, and I can bracket it in time, you can fill in some of the gaps from your experience as in one of the guys who started ER residencies and one of the first pioneers of emergency medicine. So I'm looking back in this and looking at the early 1900s. 1903, Dr. George Cryle reported the first use of successful external chest compressions. Uh, as you know, Peter Saffer and James Elam were cooling and then ultimately some stuff with ECMO. But in 1956... It started doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth and, and got that popular. United States military adopted mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation in 1957, and then CPR was developed in 1960, and the American Heart Association at that point uh, adopted that. Now, maybe you can probably take it from there. Well, the history of resuscitation goes back to the Bible. Uh, Mickey Eisenberg, uh, who is... Uh, uh, an internist at University of Washington wrote a really very nice history of resuscitation. 
And uh, there is an account in the Bible of somebody uh, doing cardiac resuscitation successfully, but not miraculously, which is very fascinating to me. I think that <coughs> the closed chest massage, which was uh, started by George Crowell, George Crowell, by the way, was a general surgeon from the Cleveland Clinic, probably one of the geniuses of American surgery. He invented all kinds of operations uh, for thyroid cancer. He was the first one to use a mass suit because he used to operate on his patients in the sitting position because it made the anatomy easier. And uh, he was the first to describe what happens when you lose peripheral resistance. He was just a, a genius of a surgeon. His son, George Crowell Jr., spent most of his professional career trying to debunk his father's work, but he wasn't as successful as his father had been. So if, if George Crowell says that closed chest massage is good, it was good, but it took another uh, probably 80 years for it to uh, penetrate American medicine. What really started closed chest massage was the invention of uh, closed chest defibrillation by Kievenhoven at, at Johns Hopkins. Now, when I graduated medical school in 1960, closed chest massage and cardiac arrest were just beginning to um, be written about. It was not practiced very many places. We did have some early defibrillators and you could defibrillate uh, open chest as well as closed chest. And during the years of my residency, we did not use closed chest techniques until probably four or five years after I graduated medical school. We opened the chest and we did open chest defibrillation. Do doing thoracotomies and doing open chest massage on medical codes. Yes. Fascinating. And we had a stunningly interesting percentage of survivors, probably in the neighborhood of 25%. Interestingly, those are the numbers that we're getting with ECMO as well in comparison to the horrible numbers we get right yeah. now with closed chest. And I always wanted to do a, a, a prospective paired study between closed and open. I think open chest failed because it required... Uh, a couple of things. It required somebody who was willing to pick up a knife, which means no internist would ever do it. It required somebody who would be willing to take care of the patient with an open chest, which means no surgeon would be willing to do it because now you've presented him with a, a patient who's not a surgical patient who he can't operate on and he has to take care of a, a heart attack. So it, everybody breathed a sigh of relief and said, okay, we'll just do it closed. As defibrillators improved, we probably found the one thing that works for the extension of life, which is defibrillation. All the rest of it is what I call randomly fed Skinner box pigeons. I once wrote an editorial on this. Nobody can teach CPR in a way that people retain. If you look at what students do after they finish their CPR training, 
there is a decay of that knowledge that's faster than perhaps any other knowledge they will attempt to acquire other than perhaps the Krebs cycle, which I've memorized 15 times and forgotten 16 times. But the reason is there's no way to prove that any part of CPR is worth anything. And when you can't figure out what part of your activities is useful, then they very quickly change. Now, what I mean by a randomly fed pigeon is, I don't know if you know what a Skinner box is, mm -hmm. but Skinner was a Harvard psychologist who invented the theory of reinforcement, both negative and positive. And he invented these boxes where they would put an animal and then they would try to produce behaviors by reinforcement of the behavior. And what he showed once was that if you put a pigeon in a Skinner box and you feed it randomly, then pretty soon the pigeons develop all kinds of wondrous behaviors. They whistle, they coo, they flap their wings, they turn circles, because they think they're controlling the administration of the food pellet, which is coming at random. And I think that CPR is an exact sample of that. All this business of opening the airway and how many breaths to give, and now we're discovering that it's better not to give any breaths whatsoever and to just use closed chest massage. How much of that is due to a wish fulfillment belief that I don't want to touch that patient because he might have AIDS as opposed to real benefit, but it seems to physiologically work, and I think the reality is the only thing that really works for cardiac arrest is to get back to a self-sustaining rhythm. And the faster you do that, the better chance you have of a surviving patient. But you wouldn't argue, I totally get it, that we, you would not argue though that either getting patient to a shockable rhythm or keeping some perfusion, even if it's crappy perfusion, to the brain and coronaries doing chest compressions to get them to an AED or a defibrillator is probably not a bad idea. Well, it's a bad idea because we don't have any alternative. Does it work? That I don't know. That I don't know. And part of the problem, of course, is that what we are looking at is not a uniform population. What percentage of our patients are arresting from a dysrhythmia with a reasonably normal cardiac circulation and with a reasonably normal brain circulation. That percentage should do the best. What percentage have arrested because of respiratory problems as well as cardiac problems? Well, we know a significant number of people have some form of COPD and probably have some form of Corpulmonale, so they have cardiac as well as respiratory, and I would not expect those to do as well. Just as we know that the most common cause of a cardiac arrest in a child is respiratory, it's not cardiac, and they don't do well at all, even though they have the best hearts. And if you could get them going, they should do the best in terms of outcome. So we're dealing with a very ununiform population. Another study which I found fascinating was one done by a colleague of mine in Boston named Mike DeNino, who said we ought to be doing CT scans on patients who have had a cardiac arrest. And we said, why? Well, because some of them arrested because of a brain problem, not because of a heart problem. Sure. And found, as he 
pursued this, that a stunning number of the arrests really were cerebral rather than cardiac. So trying to figure out what works is difficult. And I'm not saying, therefore, don't do it. I'm simply saying that that's part of the difficulty in knowing who should benefit from ECMO or any other portion of cardiac arrest proceedings. Now, another thing that I differ from from almost every other physician is I don't believe that epinephrine is a useful drug. I think it's a dangerous drug, and I think that it has very few indications, and yet we use it like it was magic. And I think we kill more people with epi than we save with it. And for your information, I 100% agree with that, and I think a lot of us who are in the world of resuscitation right now agree with that as well. Um, it gets you ROSC, return of spontaneous circulation, but it doesn't save lives or have any effects on long-term outcomes. No, it gets you a nice blood pressure in the cuff. But if you look at what it's doing physiologically, it stops blood flow to the kidneys, it stops blood flow to the brain, and it stops blood flow to the coronary arteries. But boy, that blood pressure cuff looks good. And I think probably the only place where epi is indicated is where you have a loss of peripheral resistance because that's what it can do for you. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, for my mind, the only indication is really anaphylaxis. Sure. And I'm not even positive about it there. What if, what if, what if the arrest has resulted in loss of vasomotor tone uh, and you're maybe able to give smaller doses of epi or another drug like vasopressin or, or something else that may create or give you some, some vasoreactive properties just to get a little squeeze on the vessels? Well, but I'm not totally sure that there is such a thing. Fair enough. I think we lose blood pressure does not mean that we have lost peripheral resistance. And we use it because, yeah, when you give a presser, you get a blood pressure. And it seems to make the heart beat stronger and faster. It looks like it's useful. But if you look at it from a cellular perfusion definition of shock, I think it's worsening the shock in many important organs while it's improving it at the blood pressure cuff. And that's not the desired endpoint. Point perfectly made. That's exactly right. Can't, dis can't agree with you more. So agreeing that we don't know the cause of arrest and there are multiple populations that we're dealing with, but a guy walks into the ER right in front of you and crumples to the ground, it's going to take you a good two or some time for somebody to go get your defibrillator, get monitors on. I know you're not suggesting we don't do chest compressions in that guy. No, I simply don't know whether they do any good, but I do them because I don't know, and there's a certain amount of logic to maintaining perfusion. Theory is fine as long as you can substantiate it by falsifying hypotheses based on that theory. That's what science is, and it's, it is a matter of probabilities, not a matter of absolutes. So until you have the ability to produce that evidence that comes from falsifying hypothesis, sometimes all you have to go with is theory. Man, that's, that's absolutely true. Moving one step further, what do you see, what, where are we going with CPR? Now again, you've said a lot of stuff about preventative care, dealing with grief, dealing with death, but we still are faced with doing 
CPR right now in the ER? Do you have any thoughts of where the future should go? Is there a, you think there's a role for mechanical circulation or you think that we just don't know? Well, I know the adherents of it are, are strongly enthusiastic about it, but it's based on work in experimental models, either animals or uh, uh, dummies. And I'm very unconvinced by such work. I think that uh, there was a period in, a, in the history of American science where animal models were used extensively, particularly in surgical research, and it makes some sense when you're trying to design a technical procedure. In fact, cardiac transplantation was first done in a dog before it was ever done in a human, and trying to work out the technical details of an operation, animal models are terrific, and they can give you some information, but at some point you have to understand that A, there's a major difference between species and their response to disease, and until you have studied the problem in a human with a controlled prospective study, you cannot derive evidence from an animal model. So I don't know that the mechanical assisters are worth anything. And I, I've tried them for years. They kept coming along, and they never seemed to work very well to me. They were always expensive. They were always yet another device that you had to figure out how to use on short notice, and where is the damn thing, and how do I plug it in, and how do I start it? And I'm just bad at that sort of stuff. Without nurses, I can't even use a suction device. So I think part of the problem is how can we simplify, not how can we make resuscitation more complex. And I'm not terribly impressed with modern mechanical thumpers. I would, uh, uh, you're, you're now referring to the sort of the external chest compression devices. Yes. Yeah. As you know, uh, my, my interest is in using mechanical circulatory uh, uh, support, which would be something like ECMO. And I realize that, that uh, your hesitancy to um, embrace that possible technology is, is rests in a lot of potential areas, including the costs, and then whether or not it really has a benefit, and the fact that we need a, a true randomized controlled trial. Well, I think that there is a population of cardiac arrest patients who should benefit from ECMO, and those are the patients who have a restoration of cardiac function without cardiac output. And I don't know who those are. I don't know which population that is. I don't know how to identify them prospectively. But th at least from a theoretical point of view, there's a certain percentage of arrest patients, whatever the origin of the arrest, who have a normal electric beat but do not have a normal cardiac output. And by definition, if you could improve their output, then you could, in fact, help preserve their lives. So I don't have any problem with working on, the, on trying to identify that population. It's not like you are just picking something at random and saying, hey, this is sexy, let's do it. This is a special technique that's going to give me a niche in medicine that no one else possesses and hopefully will bring me fame, fortune, and uh, visibility. I think that the theory is a reasonable one, and it is a hypothesis-inducing theory 
that should lead to a hypothesis that can be falsified, which is what science is. Sure. Okay. So in the process of doing that, when you answer one question, you introduce a dozen others. Mm -hmm. And maybe at some point we will be able to say, okay, if you're over a certain age or if you're under a certain age, this is not going to apply to you. If you have this in your history, it's not going to apply to you, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know what those parameters are or even should be. You probably know more about that than I do, having used the technique, which I have to honestly tell you I never have. But I think theoretically there should be a population to benefit from it. What if I told you that the device that we're using now, the portion of the device that is expensable or that costs money on each patient we put this on is about the cost of a Swan-Gans catheter. It's not expensive. Now, yeah, there's some upfront costs. We have to buy the machines, and there's other costs involved with training nurses and training staff on how to use it. But for a minute, setting those aside, the actual cost for us to put somebody on ECMO right now in the ER is about, a th it's under a thousand bucks. And so my thought there is that I'm not saying we're going to put patients on ECMO and then leave them on for months wasting tons of money. And I'll just tell you how we do it. We see an arrest and we try to identify what the potential cause of that arrest is. Is this a PE? Is this an MI? And the point of that is, what treatment are we trying to bridge that patient to? And if we can identify what that is, then maybe we can just put them on for that bridge period. And if it turns out it's a non-fixable problem, you know, we've lost a couple of hours of time and a thousand bucks. And if that's true, assuming that that's true, it's sort of like doing prolonged CPR plus a thousand bucks to keep somebody alive long enough to fix a problem. It might be worth it. Forgive me for challenging your economics, please. But I have been around medical economics for long enough to be rather cynical about them. We do not charge anything out in medical economics predicated on true cost. In fact, there is no possible way to find out true costs in any aspect of medical economics. Whatever you think the cost of your procedure is, is got zero to do with what your hospital will charge for that procedure. And it's those charges that make technology unaffordable. What does epinephrine cost? Even high-dose epinephrine, pennies. Mm. But the cost to the patient turned out to be five extra days in an ICU at 10000 or more dollars per day to finish the act of dying that should have happened in the emergency department. So I, I have no doubt that your, your catheter costs nothing. And in some sense, the personnel costs nothing because they're there anyway. There is a cost to training them, but that's not a high cost. And there is a cost to having a unit that can accept patients like this that is a real cost and yet is probably affordable if you're doing it often enough with success. Mm -hmm. So I am not going to argue with you that it can be made affordable. What I'm going to argue with you is that it won't be. But that's a separate issue from whether or not it should be done. Totally understand. If I did tell you, though, that our, our ambitions for doing this is to try to save, as you know, 
we're trying to save lives that w of people who will who are going to die. And so these are folks that when we're putting somebody on ECMO now in our ER, they failed ACLS. So we're going to pronounce that patient. And if we can put them on pump and get them to the cath lab, and like we've done, and open vessels, and guys are out there now back with their families, there's got to be, there must be a value, although not monetary value necessarily, but there's a, uh, there's a big value to that, I think. Certainly one of the goals of emergency medicine is to prevent untimely death. We all die. And yet, we don't all die tomorrow. So we have spent our lives as emergency physicians trying to prevent untimely death. I'm not going to argue that that isn't a good thing to do. When I've devoted well over half of my life to doing it, and certainly, there has to be a population who will benefit from this, as I already said, by sure. theory alone. So the fact that you have found some who've survived is of great interest to me that it maybe confirms that theory, although we don't know whether those patients would have survived anyway until we study it. Even so, I will predict that there is a group or a subgroup, if you will, who will benefit from it, were we just clever enough to identify it. Sure. Uh, I'd like to, you know, Peter, Peter Saffer actually said, if I recall, that death is not the enemy. It just has a little problem with timing. And my, I think you know this, my goal here is to try to raise some awareness for something that may be of benefit, and that's really what we're doing. Peter Saffer was a wonderful man. I had a great deal of pleasure knowing him and uh, working with him on some committees. He was very bright, he was very articulate, and unlike many uh, uh, people in the world today, he was very nice. So uh, he, he had some brilliant ideas, and he basically created pre-hospital care in the United States. Not single-handedly, but he certainly was one of the top two or three people to do it. I used to argue with him that I thought that his efforts were misguided because there was nobody to treat the patient when he successfully brought him from the street to the emergency department and that I would have started in creating the doctor in the emergency department. But both were necessary and I certainly can't f fault him in any way for the competency that he brought to pre-hospital care. Peter, I can't thank you enough for coming by and talking to me about this today. This was fantastic, and as always, really good to see you. Good. You too, Joe. All right, buddy. And I wish you well with uh, your ECMO. <laughs> A little plug at the end. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate that.